Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics tonight, the Alberta Premier brings in sweeping new restrictions to try to slow the wave of COVID infections in that province. But will it be enough? We'll get the view from this Alberta immunologist. On a day when Health Canada uh, approves the use of the Pfizer vaccine for children 12 and over. The House begins debate on the bill to implement many of the promises in the budget as the Parliamentary Budget Officer releases a new report questioning the impact and the need for the massive spending. The PBO, Yves Giroux, will join me. And that budget bill will be subject to another confidence vote for the minority government. And with the possibility of a snap election any time, the bill for a safe pandemic vote is hung up in the House. MPs will be here to explain why. But we will begin tonight in a COVID hotspot of North America. That's Alberta. It has more cases per capita than any other jurisdiction on the continent. And the Premier has moved to try and get control of the wave and protect an overburdened hospital system. Today, Jason Kenney and his ministers met the media to face questions about the tighter public health restrictions placed on the province, even as the Premier announced that all Albertans aged 12 and over will be eligible for vaccines beginning on Monday. The new measures in Alberta include reducing limits on outdoor gatherings from 10 people to 5. Restaurant patios will close at the end of the business day Sunday for the next three weeks. Classes from kindergarten to grade 12 will move to online learning starting Friday until May 25th. And post-secondary learning will be online only. All non-essential workplaces with COVID outbreaks must close for 10 days and retail businesses must limit their capacity. There are also new limits on gatherings for religious services or funerals. The basic fine for violating health orders will double to $2,000. And today the Premier defended the need to take urgent action. We have no tools left, no tools left to prevent a worst case scenario in the healthcare system apart from these additional measures that we've taken. So again, we, we, we take on board what people have to say, including um, MLAs, but ultimately we have to make what we think is the right decision uh, with public health being the top priority. Well, has Alberta taken the right measures to curb the COVID wave? And do these measures uh, come too late? Let's bring in Dr. Craig Jenny. He is an associate professor of microbiology, immunology, and infectious diseases at the University of Calgary. Uh, Dr. Jenny, thanks uh, for your time today. Uh, it's, it's good of you to take time to speak with me. Thanks. Hi. Look, Alberta has a big challenge. Uh, we all know that in trying to get control of this COVID surge. Uh, has the Premier taken the right action to make that happen? I think, unfortunately, the Premier really didn't have much choice at this point. We, we have seen on record numbers the last few days, both in new cases, but as well as active cases in the province. And we've seen record numbers of ICU admissions. So really we're faced with, with few options. Uh, we have to get this, this viral spread under control and we have to do it quickly. And as a result, we've had to come in with very broad, very restrictive measures. Uh, do you think these uh, latest restrictions go far enough? It's difficult to say. We've had restrictions in place for, for a while now that have not been effective, but a lot of that does appear to be compliance. And whether that is the large public displays of defiance or everyday uh, failure to follow some of these guidelines. And we see that, for example, on patios where people are not restricted to single cohorts for, for in-person dining on patios. 
So it really is going to be a combination of do these restrictions go far enough? Hard to say. It, will people follow them close enough to have that impact? And that really, I think, is the question that has to be answered in the next week or so. The Premier talked a lot about that today, about some of the challenges that seem to be of a particular uh, nature for the province of Alberta. And one of those was the whole idea of of uh, following the rules, essentially. And uh, the fines for ongoing, uh, for ignoring the health orders, they're being doubled. Uh, but I guess how big of a problem is the enforcement side? There's been lots of criticism that uh, people know uh, and can find people breaching the rules, but the enforcement's been lax. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I don't unfortunately have any information on what the mechanics are behind that, but we do see routinely large events that are breaking the public health guidance. And then we hear following that, that few or no uh, fines were, were imposed. Uh, so it has become a problem. I think it's something that really has grown over the last year. And I think this, this has been something in the province that we've not been very good at enforcing from the beginning. And as a result, it, it's really snowballed as the pandemic has progressed. And it is now a, a, a big driver behind our, our failure to get these, these numbers under control. Is there one of these new measures that's now been introduced by the, by the Premier and uh, by, by the Cabinet uh, that you think will really make a difference? And, and uh, Because there's a, he, he described that today, and you're clearly well aware of it, there's a, a real urgency to try and get these numbers down quickly uh, because of the strain on the hospital and healthcare system. So is there, is there one thing in particular that the province is now doing that may uh, precipitate a drop here? No, I don't think it is one thing in particular. I think, unfortunately, the data is clear that the virus is spreading in most aspects of society, whether that be work, school, or social events. So we've really had to come at this with a broad approach. And the hope is by targeting all of these sectors that we can, as a collective, get those virus numbers down. The one piece that is interesting, and again, we'll see what the impact is, are the enhanced fines, are the enhanced coordination between the various uh, law enforcement agencies in the province and the hope is that we can get better compliance so that we get a, a more rapid effect of these restrictions. Uh, let me talk a little bit about the other big development today that uh, is going to help a lot of provinces and that's the the decision by uh, Health Canada today uh, to um, allow uh, the use of the Pfizer vaccine or to okay the use of the Pfizer vaccine for anyone 12 years of age and older. Uh, the Premier then uh, quickly announced today in Alberta that uh, that it'll be open, vaccinations will be open starting Monday to anybody 12, 12 and older. How big of a difference can that make uh, to a province facing a, the problems that Alberta is? Yeah, th this will be an important step. We have to remember, though, as a society, we need those vaccine numbers to be up. And when, we're, when we were talking about vaccinating only people 18 and up, that threshold became really high, probably not achievable, given that about 20% of the population of Alberta is under 18. By opening this, this age group up, we now know that the vaccine is safe, that those clinical trials have been completed, uh, data filed with Health Canada and reviewed. So we, we have confidence in the vaccine. We know it works in this age group that this will allow us to get more people in the province vaccinated and get that that overall population number up and closer to what we would term a herd immunity where we can have some community level protection. Prior to this, knowing that 20% of the province was under 18, it, it would have been essentially impossible to hit a true herd immunity in Alberta. So let me finish on this. Do you believe that these new uh, restrictions, the, uh, uh, the expanding of the, the, the vaccine uh, rollout, uh, 
you know, will that be enough to prevent the province from hitting this red zone that Jason Kenney talked about today, which is the utterly stretching of the hospital system that he says could happen in early June if we don't get the numbers under control? You don't get the numbers under control in Alberta. Is this going to do it, do you think? Again, I, I wish I could predict the future. On paper, these, these are, you know, productive measures. These will have an impact on paper. The difference is translating paper words, uh, announcements, to real-life compliance and enforcement. So I think that that's the key here in Alberta, that we have seen announcements. We have seen you know, fairly rest restrictive decisions made about three weeks ago, and they've had no effect. Mm. And, and the reason is, is we're not following them close enough. All right, so the next, uh, I guess, week or 10 days or so will tell us uh, uh, what's working and, and whether it's working in Alberta. Uh, Craig Jenny, always good to talk to you. Thanks for your time today. You're welcome. Take care. Two important vaccine updates to report today. Two more deaths related to extremely rare reactions from the AstraZeneca vaccine. Those deaths been reported uh, in Canada today. Two more. An Alberta woman in her 50s developed blood clots after receiving the vaccine. And a person in their 60s in New Brunswick has also died after experiencing blood clots uh, after getting the AstraZeneca vaccine. And Canada has become the first country to approve the Pfizer vaccine for children 12 years of age and older. Now it will be up to the provinces to decide when to begin vaccinating younger uh, people to combat any COVID transmission in schools or in community settings. Already heard Alberta is going to start that on uh, Monday. And the decision will help Canada get closer to herd immunity. Health Canada made the decision after reviewing clinical trials in the United States that found the vaccine is 100% effective in children between the ages of 12 and 15. Since the beginning of the pandemic, approximately 20% of cases of COVID-19 in Canada have been reported in people under the age of 19. While younger people are less likely to experience serious cases of COVID-19, having access to a safe and effective vaccine will help control the disease's spread to their families and friends, some of whom may be at higher risk of complications. It'll also support the return to a more normal life for our children, who have had such a hard time over the past year. Well, members of Parliament began the debate today on the bill to implement key measures in last month's budget. The omnibus bill includes a $15 minimum wage, changes to COVID emergency aid programs, and even changes to the Elections Act. This bill will also be subject to a confidence vote in the Commons, so the minority Liberal government needs the support of at least one opposition party to avoid defeat and a snap election. This budget, Madam Speaker, meets three fundamental challenges. First, we must conquer COVID. That means buying vaccines and supporting provincial and territorial healthcare systems. It means enforcing quarantine rules at the border and within the country. It means providing Canadians and Canadian businesses with the support they need to get through these final lockdowns. Second, we must punch our way out of the COVID recession. That means ensuring lost jobs are recovered as swiftly as possible and hard-hit businesses rebound quickly. It means providing support where COVID has hit hardest. To women, to young people, to racialized Canadians and low-wage workers, and to small and medium-sized businesses, especially in tourism and hospitality. When fully enacted, this budget will create, in total, nearly 500,000 new training and work opportunities for Canadians.
And third, the major challenge is to build a more resilient Canada. Better, more fair, more prosperous, and more innovative. Well, setting aside the threat of a snap election for a moment, what about the content of the budget itself? The parliamentary budget officer issued a new report today warning the government is overstating what effect its stimulus measures will have on the economy. And he also warns the massive spending may limit the federal government's fiscal options down the road. Parliamentary budget officer Yves Giroux is with me now. Mr. Giroux, good to see you again. Thanks for being here. Look, let's begin with the economic outlook as projected in the budget. How does your forecast for what's ahead for the Canadian economy and economic growth over the next five years, how does that compare with the government's expectations and predictions in the budget? Well, our projections are closely aligned to those that the government released in its budget. So there's very little difference between the two projections. For example, for nominal GDP, which is the broadest measure of the size of the economy, there's a $5 billion difference, or 0.2%, in the, the level of nominal GDP, which is literally nothing for over well, $2,500 billion economy, so $2.5 trillion economy. It's virtually nothing. Where there is a difference is when it comes to the fiscal forecast, so the forecast for the deficit, mm -hmm. uh, there's a, a difference between our forecasts and those of the government. So after taking into consideration budget measures, we arrive at deficits that are $5.6 billion higher than what the government has released in the budget last month. And, and what accounts for those higher projections from your end? Well, it's in part differences in costs when it comes to the, the cost of the COVID-19 support measures and also differences in um, forecasted revenues from tax revenues. So these are the main sources of the difference, as well as difference in, uh, in the revenues generated by enterprise crown corporations. Okay, let's talk about the measures in the budget. The government says the budget includes more than $100 billion to stimulate the economy over the next three years. How much of that, uh, in your analysis, is actually stimulus spending? Well, we've taken a, a look at that, obviously, because of the government claim that it has, it's spending over $100 billion in stimulus. And what we find is that a couple of these billions of dollars is, is in fact, uh, amounts that are for uh, COVID-related support. So the government itself has made a quite, quite a stark distinction in the fall economic statement last fall, as well as throughout last year, that COVID-19 support measures were exactly that, support measures to ensure that the economy did not collapse as the pandemic uh, made its way into the Canadian economy. So there's support measures on the one side that are, are intended to to help us get through the pandemic. And then the government in the fall statement said that it would invest an additional 70 to $100 billion in stimulus to jumpstart the economy. So we've taken out all of the measures that were COVID-19 support measures, and we've limited ourselves to a three-year window, which the government said it would target in the fall statement to um, spend that money and invest that money to jumpstart the economy. So Taking out COVID-19 mm -hmm. measures, we arrive at $69 billion that could be considered stimulus measures over the three-year horizon this year and the next two years. Okay. Uh, the finance minister says that stimulus in the budget will, will boost economic growth by 2% a year and create 334,000 jobs. Uh, your analysis brings you to a different conclusion. What is it? 
Well, we conclude that the, uh, the stimulus measures will increase GDP by 1% and will create uh, a more humble 74 to 90,000 jobs over that three-year horizon. So, so, so less, less than a third of what the government predicted in the, in, in the budget. Exactly, because a good part of the, the, um, the stimulus that the government considers stimulus was announced before the budget last fall, in fact. Some of it is clearly not stimulus, as I just mentioned. And um, so these measures would all have been taken into account before the budget by private sector economists uh, on whom the government relies to, to get its economic projections. So you announced something way before the budget in the fall of 2020. Private sector economists take that into account when they, 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 when they table sure. their forecasts for the years ahead. So you cannot count that in the economic projections and also say that this will create additional economic stimulus. Well, that would be double counting for some of the measures. Yeah. Uh, the budget also sets labor uh, and sort of market indicators of uh, the employment rate, hours worked, the level of employment uh, to decide when stimulus would be uh, wound down, those guardrails the government always talks about. But you find that almost all of the jobs lost during the pandemic, they'll actually be made up by March of next year when the stimulus measures are supposed to kick in. So what does that say about the government's approach? Well, the government had indicated in its fall statement that it would use guardrails to, to guide itself as to when the COVID, or the, sorry, the stimulus measures should be wound down. But by by looking at the, the numbers and even in the budget, these guardrails or these labor, labor market indicators will almost all of them be back to pre-pandemic levels by the end of this fiscal year. So by March 2022 which will be the first year of the stimulus measures. So that suggests, as I've been saying before, mm -hmm. that the economic stimulus might be too much and might be too late. So one year of economic stimulus might be sufficient to return to pre-pandemic levels of employment or labor market indicators if the goal is solely to return to pre-pandemic uh, labor market indicators. If the goal is to uh, implement new policies, that's totally different. But if you're looking at uh, stimulus for the labor market, uh, one year should should be sufficient. All right. Uh, uh, Yves Giroux, Parliament, uh, Parliament's budget officer. Good to talk to you again, sir. Uh, thanks for taking time to speak with me. My pleasure. Well, even if there is no election over the budget, we could have a snap vote sometime over the next six months, and it could come while Canada is still dealing with COVID-19. The Liberal government introduced a bill, C-19, in December to allow a federal election to unfold safely during the pandemic, if one happens, by offering a three-day voting period, easier access and use of mail-in ballots, and mobile polling stations. But that bill is now stalled in the legislative process and may not be passed before a snap election occurs. Let's bring in three members of Parliament to discuss where all of this is at. Kevin Lamoureux is the Parliamentary Secretary to the President of the Privy Council, Dominic LeBlanc, the sponsor of the bill to make the changes to the Elections Act. Marilyn Gladue is the critic for the president of the Privy Council for the Official Opposition Conservatives. And Daniel Blakey is the Democratic Reform critic for the NDP. Good to see you all. Mr. Lamoureux, let me start with you. Why is it urgent to pass this bill? Should we expect your government to uh, be going to the people soon? 
Well, first and foremost, uh, our priority is not an election. It is continuing to do whatever we can to minimize the, the negative impacts of the coronavirus or, or the pandemic. What's important in regards to C-19 is that these are temporary amendments that, that will offer more ways for Canadians to safely vote actually during a pandemic while ensuring the health and safety of voters, uh, election workers, and in fact, all participants in Canada's election electoral uh, system, okay, which uh, is a good thing. Okay, and I'll come, come back to where it is in the process here, but Marilyn sure. Glad, do, do Conservatives support the changes in, in this bill? And if not, why not? Well, there are many changes in the bill that are going to be very good to protect the workers and to protect the voters and to make sure that people have as many opportunities to vote um, and that the process is, is simple. But, uh, you know, Kevin is correct. Canadians don't want an election in a pandemic. And uh, the reality is we have a tried and true democratic process and we need to make sure that we protect that. Right. But are you saying that are you saying that the, these amendments that I just mentioned, uh, the parliament should not move to enact those amendments to make uh, an election safer, that we would have an election under the current rules? Everybody votes. There are certainly, uh, you know, the, the extra voting days that will provide extra opportunity. We know that there will be uh, more people doing mail-in ballots. So we need to make sure that we have the capacity to, to process those. And so those are the things that, that need to debate in the House. And that's what's happening. Okay. Uh, Mr. Blakey, let me turn to you. Uh, these changes are make, aimed at making it easier and safer to vote in a pandemic. Um, does the NDP support this bill and these measures to make that happen? We're generally supportive of uh, what's in the bill. There, there are some uh, other things that we'd like to look at putting in the bill, and it's why we're keen to get that bill to committee. Because uh, while I, while I uh, respect my conservative colleagues, uh, you know, desire for for debate, the fact of the matter is, right now in second reading, we're debating the principle of the bill. And what's the principle? The principle is that the current election rules aren't adequate to a pandemic. Then there's the details of the bill, and I think those are properly discussed at uh, committee, and then perhaps depending on what comes out of committee, uh, even more so in the House of Commons. But at the moment, on the principle, I, I, I'm really surprised that most members wouldn't be satisfied that we need to make some modifications to the Canada Elections Act to make sure that we have an election that is both safe from a public health point of view but also from the point of view of uh, ensuring that everybody who wants to vote can vote, that there are no unnecessary right. or insurmountable barriers to voting. Oh. And, and so, you know, uh, we should be able to get that done and move it on to committee. Yeah, well, you, the, the, that's, that, that, that's what we're certainly talking about. Mr. Lamaru, why is the bill stalled in Parliament? What's been holding it up? In, in one word, Conservative Party, <laughs> or I guess that's two words. Um, you know, at the end of the day, the government has attempted on a few occasions to get it through. Uh, we have to recognize that there's a finite amount of time in on the floor of the House of Commons. Uh, during second reading, uh, we have seen, uh, you know, some filibuster or frustration that has taken uh, place. No indication at all from the Conservatives uh, how long they would like to, to speak uh, to the legislation. Uh, I think it, you know the, the principle is very positive, and the minister has gone out of his way uh, to to opposition members to say, look, let's get it to committee, let's talk about it, open to changes, and so forth. We need to get it out of second okay, reading. Let, so let, let me move to Marilyn Glad. If you let me come back, if you support in principle what the bill is trying to do, um, are 
are, are you on board with trying to get it through the process as quickly as possible so that we do have a snap election? These uh, changes to the Elections Act uh, would be in place. Uh, where are Conservatives absolutely, on that? Absolutely, Peter. But what the Parliamentary Secretary has just said is, is absolutely not the case. The government is in control of the schedule in the House. They've scheduled this bill four times and then withdrawn it from the schedule. I know because I was scheduled to speak. We've had one Conservative speaker out of 120 of us that's had an opportunity to talk about the, you know, the things that we like and the things that we don't like about this bill. How many and Conservatives? So how many Conservatives do you think will Will be speaking on it. Can you can you tell us that? How many want well, to speak on it? You know, I've had 17 express interests, but certainly we're willing to work with the government on this to to get it across. But it's going to a committee. Keep in mind, that has been filibustering for 40 hours uh, because of the Liberals' desire to cover up. Um, you know why they've probed Parliament over the wee scandal. That's you know, Mr. Blakey. That's uh, that's a fair point, I suppose. I mean, if. Uh, speed is of the essence here. Even if you do get it to committee, it's supposed to go to a committee that right now has been 40 hours of filibustering over uh, over the reasons why the government prorogued uh, last summer. So uh, is this thing doomed? Well, uh, having taken in almost all of those 40 some odd hours of the filibuster the procedure in House Affairs Committee, I can say it is indeed very frustrating. But typically when legislation is sent to committee, it takes priority. So that might actually, you know, offer a welcome break. I don't think this legislation is doomed at all, but we do need to find a way to move it forward. I, you know, I, we're certainly open to discussing options around having, you know, more sitting time in order to be able to do this. But I, I think it's at the point, frankly, where the parties need to sit down and come up with a plan. And so if we can only debate C-19 by having uh, some evening sittings or a weekend sitting or something, everybody should be putting their cards on the table, say who wants to speak, how much time we think is reasonable, in order to get it to committee, because the idea that we could end up falling into an election and not have adapted our election rules for a pandemic is just ridiculous, frankly. And I think, you know, Canadians should be disappointed. If they're not, they should be. I think they are, that we can't get our act together yeah, on right. this. This is like, it's time to be an adult in the room and get this done. Mr. Lamour, uh, uh, notwithstanding, so uh, is it a scheduling issue? Is it a uh, many men, you know, uh, not, you know, parliamentarians don't necessarily want to agree with shortening the amount of time they have for debate on issues such as this. So, uh, so is this a logistical uh, problem in your mind, or do you think, you know, are you, are you suggesting conservatives don't want the legislation to pass and they're actively trying to block it? I, I do believe that they're actively trying to block it. Like when, when Gladys makes reference to the fact, well, we've called it and we've withdrawn it. Well, we have called it. I remember one day I was there sitting ready to be able to speak. And the, as opposed to uh, the bill being called, the conservatives move a motion of concurrence on our report, uh, which killed the day in terms of being able to debate Bill C-19. We just heard Gladys say, well, maybe 17 members. Well, that, that equates to eight and a half hours or two, or two days of debate. Remember, there's a, there's a lot of legislation that is there. It's not like government can bring you know, we have the budget, we have the supports, we have the economic okay. statement. There's all sorts Let's of things see. Okay. that are there. I, I, you said Gladys, but I think you mean Marilyn Gladue. But, I'm sorry. But yes. Yeah. Uh, um, Ms. Gladue, what, what can you tell Mr. Lammer right now? Let, let's make a deal right here on CPAC. Uh, what can you tell him about how you're prepared, how you're prepared to, to move this forward? Uh, obviously, uh, it's on uh, the docket for debate uh, tomorrow and Monday. Mm -hmm. We'll certainly put up our speakers. But keep in mind, I mean, the government was in a rush to introduce this in December. 
And then they didn't bring it forward for debate until like the end of February for the first time and then withdrew it. So, you know, certainly we're willing to work with them and we're willing to come to a compromise because we do want to make sure that we protect the workers and the uh, uh, people that are uh, voting in the election. And uh, so we'll move forward and see how it goes on Monday. Okay, last 30 seconds to you, Mr. Blakey. Uh, How does this get fixed? Well, look, it took us from June to October to get a study at PROC on pandemic elections. Once we got it underway, the conversation around the table was pretty good. We had a lot of all-party recommendations. I just think, you know, you can either be focused on blame or you can be focused on solutions. The time has come to get focused on a solution on this. It, when it comes to election law uh, changes, you know, all parties really should be at the table. So we should be sitting down and figuring out a plan for how to for how to move this forward. And I, I think it's just okay. incredibly disappointing we'll, that we haven't been able to do that yet. We'll, we'll continue to watch uh, how all this unfolds. Uh, uh, thanks to, to all of you for your time tonight. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. And that is all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics. I'm Peter Van Dusen from all of us here at CPAC. Thanks again for watching. Until next time, take care.